Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Frame and Sequence podcast. My name is Todd Rittendero, and in this episode, I sit down with Joshua Zucker-Pluta. Joshua is a cinematographer based between Los Angeles and New York City. His work has been shown in the New York, Telluride, Venice, and Toronto International Film Festivals, and has been included in the esteemed Criterion Collection. Most recently, he worked as second unit cinematographer for Alex Garland on his upcoming TV series, Devs, for the FX Network alongside Rob Hardy, BSC, and Andrew Whitehurst. After graduating from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts in 2001 with a degree in film production, Joshua spent the next several years ignoring common sense and touring in punk rock bands. He then returned to film as a cinematographer, working on commercials, music videos, narrative projects, and documentaries. Joshua holds an MFA in cinematography from the AFI Conservatory in Los Angeles and is a director of photography in the International Cinematographers Guild Local 600. In this episode, we chat about his formative high school years, his background in music and playing in punk rock bands, his aesthetics as a cinematographer, his personal photography practice. We also chat about some of the films and directors we have mutual love for, as well as some of our experiences in film school. It was a real treat to sit down with Joshua, and I hope you enjoy. Hey, Joshua. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. Flattered. Thank Uh, you. I followed your work for a long time, and uh, man, uh, you have a prolific amount of photography and cinematography and, and all sorts of stuff that I would just love to get into and ask you about. So, uh, awesome. Away we go. Um, well, let's start with, you know, where we were before we started rolling, which was this idea of like learning on film as opposed to digital and how that sort of maybe influenced, you know, how we, how we approach the world and how we approach our own art. Right. Uh, yeah. For those listening, we, uh, I should have record a little bit earlier, but we, uh, we both went to NYU for film and we were, I think some of the few last classes yep. to actually shoot and and cut on film on a Steinbeck. Yeah, I'll never forget, like, when I was graduating, a friend of mine who's, who who went on to be, like, the head of, like, you know, Digital Post at, like, Legendary, I remember he sort of pulled me into, like, the place he was working, and he was like, oh, check this out, it's called 24P. <laughs> and, we, and I was, like, blown away. We were all just, like, blown away by it. Right. And so... Yeah, I think the Avid had just made an appearance at NYU. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, yeah, senior year, somebody was cutting a film on him. I'm an avid, but yeah. it was very clean. It was like a giant computer room from like a yeah. 1970s movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What do you feel like f- learning on film gave you? I don't have I don't have very strong opinions on the whole film versus digital thing. Yeah. But um, one of the things that sort of like kind of come up in my career over and over and over again is I really do believe in having a strong foundation in whatever you do before you sort of branch out into sort of any form of experimentation. You know, I'm. You know, I was trained as a, as a painter, I was trained as a musician, and having that kind of sort of foundation really has helped me, I feel, you know, in, in various ways throughout my life. And I feel like learning to be a filmmaker by shooting on film was really invaluable in the sense that everything becomes very precious, and there's something very good about that and very bad. What's great about it is you do become very um, disciplined about how you shoot and, and your pre-production and when you're on set and you know and it just it, it made you very conscious of everything you do it makes you put a lot of thought into everything and you know something that we you know I, I later went to uh, AFI for cinematography one of the things they, they really sort of drive into you there is like everything you shoot should have a purpose mm-hmm. like don't shoot it if you don't like want it to be in the edit that's like this big thing that's driven home uh-huh. Like that. Yeah, it's awesome. And I think that's something that I had already sort of had built into me because I learned on film, because film was so precious and you make every, you know, every take count and you're not just doing hundreds and hundreds of takes. You're rehearsing, you're lighting, you're doing all the things with it with intentionality. Yeah. And also, you know, I would never want to edit on a Steenbeck ever again. <laughs> it's like the most Sisyphean process in the world. But like there was something beautiful about saying like, you know, 
like this amount of like physical space equals a second of time. Yeah. There is something like really beautiful about making something that's intangible, tangible like that. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is important. I think it's important to learn how to edit your own things. It makes you a better cinematographer. It makes you a better filmmaker. So those are, that was something I really got out of. I feel like really fortunate that we were one of the last classes. Yeah. I I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I remember like, all-nighters sitting in that edit suite with the uh, steam deck and like rolling it back and forth and being like do i really want to make that cut <laughs> yeah if i if i want to go back i've got to tape it back up and it's yeah. gonna be a nightmare <laughs> yeah and there's a certain romanticism about it you know, like i For like sure. you know like i like i said i would never want to do it again but i have like really fond memories of it yeah. but like yeah you couldn't pay me to do it again <laughs> do, you, do you ever shoot on film anymore um not as much as i'd like yeah you know like i said i, I really don't have strong opinions about it you know, I do think there is, like, what I really dislike about that argument right now is a lot of people tend to use it as a way to make people feel sort of, like, less than yeah. or just sort of, like, totally. you know, like, somehow shooting film is somehow superior to shooting digital. And that's actually, like, not true. Like, it's so easy to shoot film. Yeah. It's actually, like, really hard to fuck it up and make it look bad. And the more you fuck it up, the better it looks. <laughs> totally. Whereas, like, if you can make digital look good, then that, that's, like, real talent because digital is inherently ugly. Yeah. And so I'm always a little bit frustrated by some of these cinematographers who really like market themselves as like film DPs. And then I look at their work and I don't see anything to it other than just, you know, film. Yeah. You know, it's like, and you, you need to be more than just shooting on film. Like I, you know, so to me, it's not that interesting of an argument. I love shooting on film, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this whole thing about, you know, like Steve Yedlin does this whole presentation about like ultimately it doesn't matter because we're all going to look at stuff on our televisions and our, on our phones. Right, right. And if you're looking at a DCP, it's really hard to distinguish the difference between film and digital. And I, I would agree with that. But like if you get to see a print of something like that was shot on film, it's like a, you know, it's like a religious experience. It, there is something like beautiful and tangible sure. to it. But do I, do I think it makes you a better cinematographer? Does it, do I think it makes your art more valid? Like, absolutely not. Does your process change from one to the other? Do you, do you use a light meter? Or do you think about light differently? I mean, obviously, when you're, when you're on set with film, you have to use a light meter. You right. know, and I'm, you know, I know there are some DPs out there who are sophisticated enough that they, they can expose without it. I'm not one of those, unfortunately. Yeah, I think I always start off on set with a light meter. And, you know, and then eventually I sort of stop, you know, because once you sort of kind of like figure out your exposures, you kind of know where everything's sitting. So I think that's kind of where I am right now, especially with digital. I'll take my initial readings and then, you know, from there it's pretty easy with the waveform and monitors just to sort of go by your eye. Yeah. You know, but occasionally it's nice to sort of take a pause. And, um, you know, I used to be a smoker. And um, one of the things that was sort of nice about that when you know, was like when I would play music or paint, you know, you would have to sort of take a break to you know, smoke. Right. And it sort of caused you to reflect a little bit about what you were doing. And so it was one of the hardest things to do with giving up smoking. I feel like metering is the same way. Sometimes I'll intentionally just sort of take a break to meter just so I can give yeah. myself to process what we're seeing and what we're doing and sort of take stock of things. You know, when you're on set and you're in the heat of the moment, you know, it's all about moving quickly and fast. And sometimes it's good to sort of just take that pause. Yeah. And I feel like the light meter, even if you're not actually taking your readings, it's kind of a great way to like, you know, sort of take a second on set to reassess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny, there's this uh, French photographer who I love, Brassai, who I'm sure you know, and he would go do his night exposures in Paris, and he smoked three different kinds of cigarettes that each burned at a different rate. So <laughs> he knew the general lighting of a situation that like he would smoke that cigarette and this exposure would be done when that one burned out, which I always thought was hilarious. That's interesting, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, folks, we had to make a location move, but um, we were back, and um, yeah, I just, I'd love to learn more about your background, and um, I know that music was a huge part of your life yep. as well. And So I am originally from New York, but my family moved down to Baltimore 
you know, when I was in middle school, middle school. So I kind of spent middle and high school down there, and we kind of um, sort of evenly time evenly divided between New York and Baltimore. You know, I'm Jewish and the descendant of Holocaust survivors. Wow. And there was never a time in my life where I wasn't sort of very acutely aware of that and how it made me um, different from, from other people. You know, I sort of grew up with this sort of very immense and intangible fear, kind of knowing that most of my family had been murdered. Gosh, can't even imagine. Yeah. And then just this overwhelming sense of loss. You yeah. know, you sort of kind of grow up with like, um, yeah, it's hard to explain, but just this really overwhelming sense of loss. And those things really, I think more than almost anything, really informed you know, who I am, and I think ultimately all of my work sort of boils back to that wow. experience and how I sort of view the world, this sort of sense of otherness, this sort of sense of, like, outsiderness, this sense of, like, loneliness, this sense of longing. It all sort of, you know, sort of comes to that, back from that, you know. Right. You know, the arts were, like, always strongly encouraged in my household. So I kind of grew up from a really young age, just like painting and drawing and like playing music. And my parents were really encouraging of that. And the other thing I fell into pretty quickly, you know, as I said, you know, I was, I always very much felt like an outsider. You know, I, I fell very quickly into sort of the punk and hardcore scene. So like growing up in Baltimore in the 90s, really close to, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. Right. And at that time, you know, Baltimore was not a cool place. Not like it sort of is now. You know, D.C. definitely sort of overshadowed everything that was sort of going on in Baltimore. You know, there's this huge uh, punk and hardcore scene, you know, b- you know, based basically around like Fugazi and Discord records. You know, so I really fell into that. And there's a certain like sort of eth- ethics and ethos that sort of comes from being in that scene and sort of how you conduct yourself as an artist and as a human being. You know, those are the, the things that really sort of defined who I was and, it, you know, has very much defined how I approach life and how I approach my work and how I just sort of interact with the world and interact with people. You know, I played, I was a music, you know, I sort of grew up playing in punk and hardcore bands and I feel like almost more than anything that's really helped me be, you know, a filmmaker. You know, at its best, you know, and it's not always this, but most of the time, you know, music, being, you know, being in a band is an inherently sort of collaborative process. And when it's done right, in my opinion, filmmaking is an inherently collaborative process. Absolutely. The times I'm on set are where, where it, when it falls apart, it's when it's not a collaboration. Yeah, being, being in a band, I think, really sort of um, taught me how to, you know, be an artist and how to work with other artists, you know, how to let you know, sort of people express themselves creatively in the same environment as you. Right. Wow. That's very cool. Do you find that, that the music has influenced your filmmaking in terms of what you're trying to express or even just a sense of rhythm or the way that you look at visuals? Yeah, absolutely, but not necessarily in the way you would think. You know, like, as a musician, I'm really drawn to sort of, like... As, let me put this way. As, as an artist and a filmmaker, I, I tend to be... to gravitate more, toward, more towards, like, this very sort of restrained and refined aesthetic. Mm. Musically, it's, it's rather the opposite. Oh, but, interesting. But how I approach both is really similarly like as a musician I tend to take this very sort of very basic approach which is like this is only going to be interesting to like other guitarists and bassists and things like that but I never really use effects in my playing it's Mm. always you know I just have like you know maybe reverb and some sort of overdrive but it's all about sort of my hand and how I sort of interpret the instrument right and I'd say I approach um, cinematography like very much the same way Mm. like I'm not really big 
on, you know, this is funny. I, I wasn't say like I'm not big on smoke and mirrors, but that's actually not true. I use smoke and mirrors all the time, like literally. <laughs> but I'm not into like, you know, I'm into sort of this very sort of like basic approach to my cinematography where it's more about my eye than it is about like a lot of sort of trickery and a lot about, you know, like it's, I'm not so much into using a lot of filtration or doing things in post. Sure. It's very much about me interacting with what I'm seeing. And so I feel like in that sense, like the two, you know, are very, very similar. Right. At what point did you realize you wanted to go more into film? Were you doing that before college or? I was doing, yeah, so I got really, really lucky. I went to an amazing school for the arts in Baltimore mm-hmm. on this place called Carver Center. There were only two grades, ninth and 10th grade. So I was the first, you know, in each year they added a subsequent grade. So I was the first class to graduate all four years there. Wow. And it was this amazing program. It was a public school. But it was, you know, probably the most sophisticated, like, art education I had up until I went to AFI. You know, like, we spent more than half the day sort of, you know, on the arts. And, you know, by the time we were in our senior years, you know, you kind of had your own personal studio and you kind of spent, you know, most of the day just (laughs) developing a really (laughs) intense art practice. And we learned how to critique at a very young age in a very sophisticated way. And we were exposed to a lot of art, a lot of film. So I was kind of always doing that the whole time Mm. that I was doing music, you know, and I'm very contrarian. So like, you know, it's usually to my own detriment. So like if everybody's doing one thing, I got to do the other. Right. So I'm in a school for the arts. So I'm going to do the opposite of what everybody's doing. So everybody's into art. So I'm going to be a musician and everybody there was painting. And so I was like, I'm going to do the opposite of this. I'm going to do film. I don't know if that's the opposite, but it was just like nobody else was doing that. Right, so right. I was like, I had to do the thing that nobody else was doing. Um, and I'd always grown up loving film. And I had a really great mentor there who really encouraged me to sort of explore, you know, film as an art. It, I mean, the program was amazing. And apparently it's something like a lot of us have had problems with later in life. I think a lot of us went to college and struggled because mm-hmm. our, <laughs> our high school education was so sophisticated that, you know, we were all sort of a little bit, um, you know, bored with, with undergrad, right. you know, we were sort of forced to take some big steps backward. And I, you know, I, I, I actually, you know, I had dinner with my, you know, my, my former teacher not that long ago. And he sort of explained that a lot of us sort of had a similar experience. Oh, that's so, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I have this one question that I like to ask all my friends that went to NYU is, uh, would you, would you do film school over knowing what you know now, or would you just have gone and made a, taken that money and made a, a feature or something? You know, I don't know if art school in general is a great idea. And one of the things I really liked about NYU was how strong the liberal arts department was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just said, you know, I have a very contrarian nature. And so I tend to do the opposite of what's expected of me. So, yeah, I was at NYU. And I just, I really didn't enjoy the film department that much. They were really, really obsessed with like Martin Scorsese or like Marty, as they always said. And it was just this really, it was this really obvious approach to filmmaking that I didn't find very interesting. You know, they, you know, they kind of ignored all their other more interesting graduates for the sake of that approach. What I found myself doing is I just really dove into like sort of the more academic side of NYU. So I ended up, I tried to get a double major in cinema studies. And that was probably just so I could watch a lot of the, like, they had the best screenings. And I think I just did that as an excuse to get access to those screenings. Right. And I think I eventually just couldn't, you know, I couldn't actually fulfill the requirements to get that double major. But I ended up minoring in comparative literature. Oh, wow. And that was just because I, I really loved the academic side of NYU. Yeah. And so um, I spent most of my time, 
you know, an undergraduate, really sort of developing, like, my aesthetics. I just read a ton. I watched a ton of movies. When I was at NYU, I spent the whole time working, you know, you know, part-time during the year and then full-time on the summers. I worked at other music, and, um, and that was a huge part of, like, my educational experience just in terms of being exposed to art and music and culture in New York. You know, at the time, other music was like the coolest place in the city. You know, just to sort of be around that constant sort of, you know, energy and inspiration, it was just like an amazing time to be there. Right. You know, that, that had almost more of an impact on me than, than NYU. And same thing, like when I was in high school, I worked at a video, like the art video store in Baltimore. And so I just was constantly devouring films like every night. Yeah. And those things, I think, had a huge, huge impact on me. Like, I'm grateful that I went to NYU. You know, I, I strongly encourage anybody interested in the arts to sort of not be one-dimensional. You know, I think right. um, that, I, that, that sounds really pedantic, and I don't mean it to, but meaning, like, try and make yourself to be as, like, diverse and interesting as a person as possible. And I think that was my problem with NYU film, is that it was just so focused on film. And I think there's so much more that goes into filmmaking than actually, like, film. Right. You know? Yeah. And so... And that's something that's really sort of um, helped me a lot, actually, throughout life, is sort of just being, like, a well-rounded individual. Yeah, absolutely. I think as an artist, it's key to yeah. be exposed to everything. I mean, it sounds really arrogant and pretentious, and I, and I don't mean it to, but, like, I think there's some... Like, you know, and some people, like, can be really... Can have that sort of, like... Can be have that driven focus, and it goes really, really well for them. And I think maybe my career would have moved like a lot faster if I had sort of operated that way. You know, these experiences are who makes me who I am, and I think it's sort of what helps me have sort of a, a unique perspective compared to other people. And that's something that, at least in my experience, directors have really liked about working with me. Right. And I mean, obviously, you bring a tremendous amount to a music video or a project like that, having a deep understanding of music. Yeah. Do you shoot a lot of music videos still? I do, yeah. <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> you know, I grew up watching music videos. I definitely, you know, they're a huge influence on my aesthetic, both, you know, you know uh, narratively even. Right. Like, I grew up in that sort of prime era of, like, MTV. And then, you know, and right when I was really kind of figuring out what kind of filmmaker I wanted to be, like, during the sort of prime era of, like, you know, what I would describe as, like, the auteur cinematographers, like, Chris Cunningham and Jonathan Glazer and Spike Jones and, like, all those guys. Totally. Um, the people who really elevated, like, music videos to, like, an art form, like a cinematic art form. Um, so I, I have a deep, deep, like, profound love of, like, music videos. And I think, um, as I said, I grew up in a really, a house that really encouraged, my parents, like, love music, and so it was, it was a really big part of our lives. And so image and music is sort of, like, inherently linked in my mind. And, you know, growing up, I'd, you know, watch these music videos and see these sort of, like, little worlds that they would build, and it would just, like, really get my imagination firing. You know, so, yeah, I have a real sort of uh, deep love and respect for music videos. But having said that, like, I'm really ready to move on from them. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, at this stage in the game, they're exhausting. There's not a lot of yeah, money in the them. the budgets are just gone. Yeah, the budgets are miserable. You know, but for me, I was really fortunate. Yeah, like, that's sort of how I kind of got into the industry was that when I sort of actively decided to sort of take a step back. You know, I was a touring musician for years, and I'd always kind of felt like touring was like a young guy's game and that, mm. like, I could do filmmaking whenever which isn't actually true. I think that was one of the things that was really frustrating for me when I went to AFI was like, I basically was touring as a musician up until I went to AFI. Oh, wow. And I remember thinking like, this is gonna be great. I'm never gonna have to load heavy shit into a truck ever again. 
And I'm like, that's all I did mm -hmm. all the time at AFI. I was just like load heavy shit into like even bigger trucks, <laughs> like heavier shit. Exactly. Bigger trucks. And what was the impetus for going to AFI? Um, so I, I had done a bunch of music videos that had sort of gotten some attention. And I was always a director who shot their own stuff. Like okay. I couldn't comprehend, like never, like I didn't, when I first kind of learned what a cinematographer was, it kind of blew my mind. Like I didn't understand that directors wouldn't shoot their own things. Right. That was such like, like that was my favorite part of the image making process or the filmmaking process in general was being the person sort of in control of like what you're seeing. Right. So, you know, I, I was a director who shot their own things and I, I did a few music videos that, that got me some attention. And that started to lead to me getting asked to sort of do commercial work. And I was not very good at it. And, you know, I was, it was the kind of commercial work where I was being asked to sort of write treatments for, for things. Where it's like, I'm trying to think of an example. Like, basically, I'd get asked to sell, like, sneakers or, like, puffy jackets. And I'm just, I'm not clever like that. If somebody had given me a brief, like, I would have been able to make it look amazing. I would, could have shot the hell out of it. But I don't have the kind of mind to sort of, like, come up with, like, a clever concept to get people to buy things right and it just wasn't a good fit for me and um, I started working with some other directors and cinematographers at that time who all were really encouraging of, of me becoming a cinematographer oh nice um, in particular this one cinematographer who I really look up to his name is Pete Consul mm. based in New York he's uh, you know he shot a few seasons of House of Cards you know he's he's represented by artistry here in the States amazing amazing cinematographer yeah and um, he was, like, one of the first people to really be, like, you know, maybe you should think about being a cinematographer. Like, maybe that's a better fit for you. Yeah. And he was definitely one of the people who really encouraged me to go to AFI. Oh, and, very uh, cool. Yeah. Nice. And then for, for cinematography, obviously? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what was your experience like there? I loved it. I want to say I loved every minute. It's, it's a crazy place, you know. It's, like, it's sort of like a survivor as if, like, run by Kafka. <laughs> you know, it's like you're always in trouble, but you don't know why... There's always these rules that you're breaking, but you don't know what those rules are. Right. You know, it's just... It's, <laughs> that is amazing. I love it. It's, like, super competitive, but for reasons you don't understand, you know. And I think the good thing was, is, you know, I went into the program, like, significantly, you know, older than everybody else. You know, I had 12 years in between my undergraduate experience and my graduate experience. Wow, yeah. And so I went in, like, with this, like, very laser-like focus for what I wanted to accomplish. But also... Um, you know, I had just gotten married right before I went to AFI, and my wife stayed in New York during the first year that I was there. Wow. And so we both were making these huge sacrifices to go. And so um, I was just sort of very conscious of that the entire time, like how much it was costing, you know, me and my wife for, you know, the sacrifice required for me to do that. Right. And so I just, I wanted to make the most of every opportunity that I was there. So for me, I got a lot out of it. I know there were some other people there who, you know, were younger and not quite as focused who really struggled with that. Yeah, and, I can see it for sure. Um, but for me, it was an amazing, amazing experience. Yeah. Yeah, there's part of me that always wishes I had followed up with AFI. Because I feel like NYU just does not prepare their students for the realities of the actual filmmaking business. Yeah. It was all like, oh, you'll be Jim Jarmusch and you'll have this amazing art tour career <laughs> I would agree with that completely I think that was my problem is like you know I don't really feel like I got anything out of NYU that I didn't already get in high school and you know I'd go on to these sets I'd work with somebody you know like who was like a real cinematographer like Pete and I was like man how did he learn you know to do this stuff you know like when you know it was 
I got made fun of a lot of a at AFI when I first started because I didn't know how to throw up a C stand because that just wasn't like my experience at NYU. And so I feel like you know NYU was very much kind of about that, like developing an aesthetic, kind of understanding who you are as a filmmaker. But they weren't really great at sort of encouraging you to sort of figure out like what to do with that after you graduated. Whereas you know AFI, it's like you know you just you it's it's borderline vocational in the sense that you really walk out with this like technical skill. Right. That's really invaluable. You know, like I said, I loved every minute of it. The first year is this really intensely focused program, and people, it's it's brutal. It's like seven days a week. You know, twelve to fifteen hours a day. But people love it because it's this super focused program and you're yeah. learning, you're, you're spending like almost every day on set. And when you're not on set, you're in these really intense, you know, classes. Um, the second year is the opposite. It's like really, really free form. And I know a lot of people kind of struggled with that. And this is where I'd say like my agent experience would have really helped me was that I'm very focused. And so um, when I kind of figured out that I wasn't going to learn what I wanted to in the second year, I basically used the name of AFI to get myself and a few friends into every rental house in Los Angeles. Very smart, yeah. And so we basically started holding these kind of like outside classes, me and my friends, where we would go to like Panavision. Right. And we would test every camera like really thoroughly. And we tested every single lens that Panavision had like really, really thoroughly. And, you know, me and my friends ended up having this like amazing second year. And that, I think, more than anything, really helped prepare me for a career outside of AFI. And it's strange, but um, those tests me and my friends did that year like really helped me land some of the biggest jobs that wow. I've had in my career. And also, it's white sort of you know I have a really beautiful relationship with Panavision, and that's entirely because of all the time I spent there that year. Wow, incredible! And their support has been like you know really invaluable. Like I, you know my my the people there like um, Alexa Lopez and Mike Carter have just been like invaluable in their help and support over the past, you know, few years that I've been in Los Angeles. And it's oh, very yeah. much helped me get a lot of work because of that. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Very nice. That's incredible. I mean, to have that relationship in place with such a huge rental house. Yeah. With the, the history and the pedigree as well. It never fails to blow my mind being there. And just like, you know, I, I kind of spent, I spend a lot of time there in general, um, like testing things, going in, you know, sort of developing certain skills. If you hang out there long enough, you're just going to run into some amazing people. Yeah. And just to sort of like... Yeah, it's I, I'm I, it's it's a relationship that I am so grateful for, and um, I don't take for granted whatsoever. I feel really fortunate that somehow I fell into that. Yeah, oh, that's so cool. Your work has such a distinctive look to it. Was that yeah. a conscious choice or something that naturally evolved? I'd say uh, definitely both. Where it's it's something that's naturally evolved, but I've definitely sort of like leaned into it as a conscious decision over the years. And there's this sort of two schools of thought about that in cinematography where there's some cinematographers who are very good at doing anything and there's other cinematographers who have a very specific eye and I tend to fall into that latter category that's not to say that I I couldn't shoot anything I could but I definitely enjoy shooting certain things more than others and yeah some people really think that if you're going to be like you know like sort of I feel like Roger Deakins is the example of that kind of cinematographer who can shoot anything and make it look amazing and I know a lot of people like to subscribe to this idea that, you know, he sort of has this really beautiful dogma, which is that, you know, he's there in service of the story. You know, if he puts too much of himself into it, that he's not really doing his job as a cinematographer, that he's sort of there to be sort of a, like a, 
you know, a tool to be used by the director and by the story. And everything he does has to be in service of the story. And I think that's a really beautiful approach, but it's just not um, sort of how I see the world. Yeah. And there's other cinematographers, you know, who are sort of swinging the opposite direction, who have this very, very distinct vision. You know, I mean, it's impossible not to respect Roger Deakins. He is, like, arguably, like, a master uh, of his craft. Right. But I, I tend to be more interested in cinematographers who sort of, you know, have a more, you know, individual aesthetic and eye. It's just something I identify with more. And I, you know, I'll very often go to see films based purely on this, who the cinematographer is, you know, more so than, yeah. than the director. I really, there's certain, I mean, and the cinematographers that I really admire tend to be people who, you know, are instantly recognizable. You can very clearly see their, their eye or their hand and their work. And I understand the argument that, you know, maybe that they're not doing their, their job properly. You know, I, um, I saw Chivo give a lecture after, you know, after you know, he did a screening of, of The Revenant and AFI. Right. Wow. And he's, <laughs> he's somebody who I would consider is somebody who has a very distinct eye and approach. And I think you can always tell it's him behind the camera. And yet he's, he has this very sort of, you know, varied career where he's done, you know, he's done stuff with the Coen brothers, comedies, and he's, he obviously works with Terrence Malick. He does all these different things. And so I asked right. him. Yeah, that was that was something that was really interesting to me. Is like how how do you balance a career being having such a distinct eye yet working within all these different directors and genres? And he actually got kind of um, angry at me, and he was like, <laughs> "No joke." He was like, "He's like, if it's that obvious that it's me behind the camera, and he's like, then I've utterly failed as a cinematographer." <laughs> he says the guy was three Oscars, right? I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with being able to recognize that there's a cinematographer behind the camera. I, and like I said, I really like seeing, you know, the artists I've always admired, I like seeing their hand in their work. Yeah. I remember at, at NYU, I was utterly obsessed with Robert Richardson and mm-hmm. JFK. I would just put that movie on, like, anytime I would go to shoot something. I yeah, was totally yeah. aping his style, but maybe it was the, the combination of Scorsese and him as well <laughs> <laughs> with uh, Casino. So were there any... Uh, cinematographers that influenced you early on or specific films yeah absolutely and um i wish i had like a a more interesting answer for this i feel like they're really obvious but um you know uh blade runner and alien are like the first one are the ones i come back to like constantly over and over again you know for for me i just feel like they're kind of like the um it's like the apex of of greatness with cinematography derek van lynn with alien i just feel like he doesn't get enough credit for how sort of just like flagrantly innovative and iconoclastic it is as a film like the things they do in that movie are just I don't think I don't think anything's topped that yet yeah. just in terms of like sheer inventiveness and same with like you know when you look at um, you know Jordan Cronin with, with um, Blade Runner I think that's just like the most masterful film ever made visually yeah. like I and I, I go back to them constantly you know and it's something like I'm always everything I do I'm like how can I sort of like fit those things into my work <laughs> right Blade Runner one of the things that kind of like really blows my mind is there isn't a single scene in that film where the light isn't moving somehow oh fascinating I'll have to go back and look at that yeah go back and look at it like the light is continuously moving it's like a distinct character that has its own sort of narrative arc throughout the film yeah it's very much like alive it has this real presence and that's something with my work i'm always you know trying to figure out like how can i how can i have the light move how can i have it sort of be alive how can i sort of have it sort of have its own presence within my work from like every music video to commercial like i'm always it's something i'm constantly thinking about i wonder i wonder if that's the uh, the painter in you as well because ridley scott was a painter before he got into uh commercials and film 
I mean, you know, I have to say, like, if you look at, you know, sort of Derek Van Lint, it's, an, it's sort of an interesting story. Like, that's, he only did one other feature aside from Alien. So he was really Scott's, like, commercial DP. Yeah. So they did Alien together, and then he went and did Dragon Slayer, which is like this oh, yeah. Disney sword and sorcery film. I totally remember that. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. And the same thing, like, if you look at Jordan Cronenweth, you know, like, he did things like, you know, Altered States, things like that. And neither of those guys... They're, they're really, really good, but you can see when they were working with Lee Scott, he really brought out the best in them. Yeah. And so I can't help but feel that that was like this sort of magical collaboration where, you know, he had the right DPs for the right job. Yeah. Where those guys are clearly very talented, but definitely like Ridley, like I feel like elevated it to the next level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I really love about Ridley Scott as well. He definitely has like this like strong fine art background and uh, yeah. So do you find that you gravitate towards certain stories that may give you the opportunity to explore a look that you're going for? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I really believe strongly in sort of enjoying what you do. You know, filmmaking, at its best, there is nothing like I love more. Just being on set and you know, the whole process is just amazing. And part of that, though, is, is you know, being invested in what I'm doing. Right. And, you know, I've definitely done some jobs, you know, for money where I just, you know, I was definitely there to fulfill a role. And that's just, you know, it sort of sucks the life out of whatever you're doing. <laughs> right. And so, you know, yeah, I tend to gravitate towards certain things that sort of fit my aesthetic. You know, I'm definitely interested in sort of, you know, darker and moodier um, pieces, things that sort of, you know, there's certain kind of stories I'm more interested in telling. Yeah. You know, that's not to say that, like, I couldn't do a comedy. Like, that would, it would be an interesting challenge. I would love to try that. But I'm definitely interested in sort of like a more, you know, darker nuanced take on the world and so I tend to like really try and find projects that you know for better or worse sort of fit that yeah and are you moving more towards narrative or are you still kind of bouncing between videos and uh, commercials I'm trying very hard to move more towards narrative work yeah I mean you know it's interesting because you know a lot of like um you know my former agents sort of like they sort of had me pegged as like a you know like a dark dp you know I I recently did a work with uh, this one director and she was like, you know, she's like, I don't get that. She's like, you're not, your work isn't dark. She's like, it's really, really romantic. That just meant so much to me. Yeah, I feel absolutely. Like, That's an important distinction, I think. Yeah, I would agree. You know, um, yeah, there's some darkness to what I do, but I think it's actually like I'm far more interested in like sort of, the, you know, like the romantics, you know, and like the work I tend to gravitate towards has this sort of like that sort of feel to it. But to, but to answer your, your question directly, yeah, I, I think all cinematographers, we all sort of really aspire towards doing narrative work. Yeah. I think it's what we're all sort of trained to do. It's all what a lot of us sort of grew up loving. Right. So yeah, ideally, that's the direction I'd like to move more yeah. more in. But it's, it's, a ni- it's nice being able to go back and forth. I always sort of describe the two is like, it's sort of like the difference between playing punk rock and playing classical music. Right. You know, like within narrative, there are these like very, very distinct rules that you have to understand in order to sort of, you know, to do it successfully. Yeah. And that's just like classical music. You have to understand how to read music. You have to understand how to keep time. You have to understand notation. Whereas punk rock, it's a lot more freeing. You can just sort of like, it's a pure expression of like emotion. And so with music videos, I get to very, you know, often sort of indulge whatever sort of like, you know, aesthetic, you know, like to really sort of indulge the aesthetics. Mm -hmm. But I really love the challenge of like, how do I put my eye into the story? So it's like what I was sort of saying about Roger Deakins is that, you know, he really believes he's there to like serve a story. For me, the challenge is, is like, how can I put my eye into the story? What's going to make, you know, like, how is having me behind the camera going to make this different than having somebody else do it? So that's the challenge that I really love. Oh, I love that approach too. I love that thinking like, why am I the right person for this? Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, that's something I'm wondering all the time whenever I get hired for anything. I'm always like, God, why am I the person hired for this? <laughs> that's probably just the, the artist in you. I feel yeah. like all artists have that moment of like, or I can't speak for all artists. I certainly do, where it's that moment of... A good friend of mine recently said, like, if you don't have imposter syndrome, you're like, you're not really an artist. That's the word I was looking for, yeah, yeah. imposter syndrome. <laughs> so with, with all of your experience with Panavision and all that, do you have a certain set of lenses that are yours that are, are your go-to? You know, I, I want to be, you know, once again, like, you know, it's funny, I'm, I keep talking about Roger Deakins, because he, you know, I like him, but he's not somebody like, you know, that I sort of, like, he's not like a constant reference, but I really do appreciate, uh, the guy's a mensch, and I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, he, so Roger, his whole thing is he uses Master Primes, because he feels like they're the least sort of characteristic lens out there, yeah. because he otherwise, you know, he'll never shoot anamorphic, because he thinks that anamorphic just has it just interferes with the story, you know, and I'm very, I'm like the total opposite. Yes, I believe every story has a different set of lenses you should use. Like, I would never be somebody who would only shoot master anamorphics. Right. Um, I think every story has a different format, it has a different camera, it has a different lens. Um, Having said that, like, I mean, as cliche as it is, I, I love anamorphics. You know, and I really love, just specifically Panavision's anamorphics. When you, when you, like, the first time I threw a Panavision anamorphic on a lens, like, you basically see the history of cinema just kind of unfold in front of you. Right. It really defined what I think a lot of what we consider to be, you know, cinematic. Well, yeah, I do love, you know, like, I do, you know, I tend to like, I like lenses with a lot of characteristics, especially, you know, because we're shooting primarily on digital right now. Right. Having, like, I really, like, when it comes to spherical, like, I really like a good, you know, vintage spherical. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if I could shoot Panavision anamorphic all the time, you know, I probably would. Yeah. You know, it's just... It, <laughs> it's true. It, it really does have just that otherworldly feel to it. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard not to be romantic about it. Like, it just, you, um, it really elevates the quality of anything you do, you know? You know, like last year, um, you know, I did a television series as, you know, I was second unit on it, and I was just overjoyed when I found out we were going to be shooting, like, you know, Panavision Anamorphic. And that was, that was something, a large reason why I got the job. I, well, no, I don't know if that's true, but like, it helped, it helped that I was so familiar with those lenses when the cinematographer was interviewing me. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, How do you approach a project in terms of prep or thought processes? Do you like a lot of reference or do you like to kind of just find your way with it? No, I like, I I, I love prep. Like, I like having a lot of prep. I really like directors with strong opinions and with a strong visual sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't like sort of being left up to my own desires. You know, it'll be too obvious. Like, you know, it's like when I, you know, when I play in bands, it's a similar kind of thing. Like, I never liked being sort of the driving, the pure driving force behind something because yeah. it's going to be too obvious to me. Like I know how I play, I know what my style is. It's a sort of the same thing as a cinematographer. Like if I'm just going to be allowed to do what I do, I know what the results are going to be. Mm-hmm. It's far more interesting to me when I have a director who has a strong visual sense because they'll push me and challenge me in ways that I wouldn't, you know, do normally. And as a result, I'll grow and become something you know, stronger than I was before. Right. So, um, I, yeah, I love having a lot of prep and, you know, but having said that, like, um, you know, some of the, my favorite directors I've worked with, it's been this really beautiful combination of like going in with a complete game plan, but mm. then being very open to the possibilities of what we discover on set. Yeah. You I, know, so like that, you know, like I like going to set, like if we're going to have questions, they're the right questions. Completely. I, I love that as well. I'm sort of the same way. I like a lot of prep, but then be a little more fluid and open to the moment yeah. on the day. If there's like something better behind you, you exactly. Know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Does your thinking change at all the way you handle a small project to a larger project? 
or even a commercial to a film or is it always sort of the same mental process I think it's sort of it's 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 all varying degrees of the same sort of mental process. Yeah. You know, it's obviously like what you know what's what's the overall goal of what we're trying to do? What's the story we're trying to tell? Be it you know, are we trying to sell something? You know, are we trying to tell a story? You know, and I sort of break everything down in a really similar way. But it's always like, how can I do this in a unique way? How am I, you know how is having me here going to elevate this in a way that it wouldn't if I wasn't? Right. You know, and how can I approach this in a way that's gonna you know, I, I really like whatever I work on. I really just sort of want to elevate the genre of it. You know, even if it's like a simple fashion video or super suit, you know, like a simple music video, it's like, how can we make this the most interesting and best version of this possible? Right. Like I, you know, I, I really don't believe in phoning it in. I mean, you are also incredibly prolific with your photography. Yeah. Is that uh, a passion of yours as well then? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't really do, you know, I think I told you, so, you know, growing up, I primarily did, you know, I was primarily, you know, a painter, and I did a lot of, you know, like, life drawing. Filmmaking, for me, was, in some ways, when I was younger, it was a crutch to sort of be lazy. You know, it's something that requires, which is it's funny to say that, because filmmaking requires so much focus and hard work. Oh, yeah. But it requires so many individual pieces to be in place that you can use it as an excuse to not do something for quite a while. You know, you're waiting for funding, you're waiting for crew, you're, you know, there's all these things, you know, you're sort of reliant upon so many other variables yeah. that it was kind of an easy way for me to sort of be complacent in my 20s. I think in my 20s I sort of got sick of being complacent and I wanted to try and find an art form that was purely, you know, about, you know, same thing with music, like when you're playing music, ideally it's with other people. I was never particularly interested in doing it by myself. Um, so I needed to find an art form that um, was something that was purely like an art practice. It was, you know, it was like sort of akin to painting. You know, mm-hmm. painters, I really admired my friends who were painters because they just had their studios. They can go in. They didn't need anything but, you know, just their tools and they can make work. And so for me, photography was a way back into that process. It was sort of, you know, I started doing photography as a way of sort of self-discovery a little bit, as a way of like really learning what my aesthetic was. And so I spent, you know, my, basically all of my 20s, I mean, up until now, just sort of having this like very, very devoted, very, you know, focused, you know, photography practice. Yeah. And um, it's definitely, you know, influenced who I am as an artist and a cinematographer. How often do you feel like you shoot stills? Constantly, you know, I am a little, you know, like I do sort of gravitate towards landscape work, so it is dependent on me, sort of like you know, going on trips and finding these locations that appeal to me. And I'm really trying to work on how to sort of like make work in whatever environment. You know, there's some people out there, you know, like Ryan Booth. He's a director and cinematographer, and I just, you know, I'm kind of blown away. He's always he just carries a camera with him, and he's always shooting. And you know, he lives in New York City now, and you know, he's just like constantly shooting that city. And I'm kind of like blown away by that approach. And I wish I could be quite as prolific. And I'm working on it, you know. But for me, I, I still shoot a lot, you know. And one of the great things about moving to the West Coast was just the access to sort of like the landscape that we have out here. And just, yeah, it's incredible. Even Los Angeles as a city, I think, is inherently like this very bizarre, interesting place to shoot. And so I've gotten better about carrying my camera around with me sort of all the time. But if, you know, even if I'm not like actively shooting, you know, I have this huge archive of photographs I've taken over the past, you know, 20 years. And I'm constantly reinvestigating stuff. You know, I'm constantly sort of finding things in earlier photographs that I didn't see before. Yeah, absolutely. There's I'm things that maybe, way. yeah, there's things that maybe I dismissed as being like, you know, just purely beautiful. 
not you know interesting enough and I'll, I'll suddenly see something in them that I didn't see before so if I'm not actively taking photos then I'm, I'm sort of constantly sort of going through my archives and reinvestigating things and um, you know I'm constantly researching and trying to find new approaches yeah and new ways of seeing the world yeah oh that's very cool so one thing that I'd love to get into is you used to have a podcast yes that uh, I didn't really know much about but I'd love for you to go into that a little bit and I think there's some good stuff in there. Yeah, sure. It, you know, in my 20s, I became very obsessed with, like, you know, putting my money where my mouth was, so to speak. You know, I'd spent a lot of time talking about doing stuff and never doing it. I was, you know, very, very depressed in my 20s. You know, I had been, you know, I was a, I was a professional musician for a long time. You know, so I, <clears throat> so right out of school, I worked as an assistant to Doug Aiken. And that was my first job right out of undergrad. And I did that for two years. And at the same time, I was playing music in a band and that was sort of, you know, part of that whole sort of post 9-11 New York scene. Oh, right. And we really got sort of swept up in that. And it's funny, we all sort of came from like the punk and hardcore scene, but we kind of, you know, we sold out, you know, that's the only way to put it. Like we really, you know, we really tried to make it as a band. And what started off as this like really passionate, like emotional project eventually just became, you know, this really soulless exercise. I think we were all, the three of us were really profoundly unhappy I really, you know, and I, I am just as guilty of all of this as the other two guys. And I think for, I think for a good portion of my 20s, I spent a lot of time, like, blaming those other two guys. And I think part of me learning to sort of grow up was to sort of accept responsibility for my, my role and where my life was. So I spent, you know, part of my 20s being, like, just sort of very depressed about this. One of the way, you know, I, I just, I, basically I had realized I had become a very different person than who I thought I was or yeah. who I had wanted to be. And I decided to do something about that. I, this is, you know, the beginning of, like, podcasting. So this is, like, 2004, 2005. Um, I'd always done, like, radio shows when I was in college. And I basically decided... And, you know, one of the things I did to support myself in New York was I, I DJed, like, all the time. And so I decided that I wanted to do a podcast that was, you know, that wasn't really tied to genre. And so I was going to take these two, like, very abstract emotional ideas and create a playlist sort of based around those concepts. So it'd be like ideas like sleep or memory. And I'd try and come up with a music playlist. I mean, not just music, but like sound. So I did a lot of like field recordings as well. Oh, wow. You know, one of the things is, so before I went to NYU, um, I did three semesters at the Art Institute of Chicago. Oh. And while there, I pretty much only took sound art classes. It was an amazing experience. Those classes were taught by David Grubbs from Gastro del Sol. And he would bring in like people like Steve Albini and like he brought in Tortoise and like all these amazing musicians from Chicago. And they really just, you know, turned me on to a tremendous, you know, and as I said, I worked at other music. So I kind of had this, you know, rather encyclopedic knowledge of of music and and audio and sound art. And so I decided that I kind of wanted to create these podcasts that were these like really emotional experiences. Wow. And it was sort of a way of me working through these new issues I was having in my life, this very, very deep, profound depression. You know, so I started doing them strangely. You know, they were originally just purely for myself and my friends. And then somehow some blogs picked up on them. You know, Stephen O'Malley from Sun, Warren Ellis, the comic book writer, not the guy from The Bad Seas and The Dirty Three. Like, they sort of picked up on it and blogged about it. And I ended up going from, like, having this thing that was sort of like, you know, this it's very much like this literal, like, bedroom project into something that was um, kind of, you know, at most, I think I had, like, 50,000 subscribers at one point. Still, though, for the early days of podcasting, that's pretty 
pretty huge. And I would get these like passionate emails from people who, you know, I never like very, I never sort of vocalized like what was going on with me internally. Mm -hmm. And it's a a little embarrassing going back and listening to them because I would talk a little bit in the podcasts and I kind of wish I just sort of created these playlists. But whatever the reason, um, people would listen to them and pick up to they were sort of picking up on the emotions behind what I was doing and people would write me and just be like you know I'm going through a hard time and this music is getting me through something or other people were just like you're turning me on to like all these artists I would have never heard of otherwise and it got to this point where like I'd go to shows or something and people would stop me and somehow they would know who I was and you know I was fairly anonymous with it I couldn't figure out how they figured out who I was (laughs) man that's powerful though it's strange and it it still really resonates Um, it still like echoes throughout my career you know there's this one director I work with and he found me because um, he was a huge fan of my podcast (laughs) incredible yeah and he he loves to bring it up are they uh, are they still out there available um no you know i like i have to figure that out and as i said it's really hard for me to go back and listen to them it's like listening to like this like this you know diary in certain ways right i can imagine but a few people have asked me to sort of make them available again so i've been i've been pondering it you know the show is called roadside picnic which is a uh, like an obvious nod towards um tarkovsky yeah and if you you know like you know tarkovsky is my like my favorite filmmaker and artist of all time i love his work yeah stalker if you were to ask me like stalker like you know everything comes back to that for me like stalker i think is the best film ever made um it's hands down my favorite film of all time and so that's based on the book roadside picnic so (laughs) that was my like my sort of subtle nod ah you know and that was that was sort of my little inside you know joke to anybody who would you know that, that was my sort of way of letting it was like sort of the secret handshake to listen to the podcast yeah but it's strange like how like all those things have like really affected and influenced my life there's definitely been a slow burn to my career where things that there's a saying like you know what is it like polish now and shine later and that's kind of happened a lot in my career where there's been relationships or things i've discovered in my youth that like play out again like years later and i yeah. don't i don't really suggest that as a career path <laughs> But um, it's been interesting, you know, some of the most meaningful relationships I have come from things that I established like a long time ago or or interests I discovered like a long time ago. Yeah, completely. Tarkovsky has had a massive influence on me as well. Like his book, Sculpting in Time, is I reference it probably almost every day. Actually, I just dip in and... Yeah. And just like, you know, his Polaroid book. You know, I've actually, you know, started taking Polaroids again kind of in direct response to that. Oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, you know, so... you know, something maybe I should have brought up earlier, but yeah, it all kind of comes back to Tarkovsky for me ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So what's next? I have a, uh, I'm, you know, I'm excited. I have a television show that I did second unit on that's coming out, I think in the beginning of next year. Cool. I'm really excited about. Are you allowed to say what that is yet or not? Yeah, absolutely. So I was really fortunate to do second unit for Alex Garland on his upcoming television series, Devs, which is coming up on FX. And it was literally like a dream come true experience. Incredible. Um, I got to work for um, a cinematographer I really look up to and admire, Rob Hardy, you know, who shot Ex Machina. Oh, yeah. He did Annihilation. Um, he did uh, you know, The Last Mission Impossible. He's doing um, Black Widow, like the, you know, the next All Avengers right. spinoff. Oh, that's great. Well, I, th- I think that's pretty much it for me. Is there anything else you feel like we missed or that you'd like to talk about? Off mic, we were having a conversation about sincerity. That's something, you know, that's so, um, 
more than anything, that's another thing that's sort of been a guiding force in my life is about learning to be sort of sincere as in like an artist and a human being. And, you know, I talked earlier about, you know, uh, you know, this band and how one of the reasons that sort of fell apart is we, we had all sort of stopped being sincere. And I spent a really long time, you know, in my 20s kind of like investigating that and like learning how to be um, a sincere human being. And so, you know, the podcast was a huge part of that. Right. And the podcast is what sort of then led me to, you know, starting to, you know, develop my photographic practice, you know. Mm-hmm. And from there, that's when I started making um, films again. And I, I started, you know, working on documentaries. And the thing, you know, this really defining experience for me, I had a, I had a close friend, or I have a close friend who's a photographer. His, his work is beautiful. His name is Kurt Mangum. You know, he and I were doing a lot of work together at the time, playing music and taking photographs together. And he told me this story he had heard about this forest in Japan where people go to commit suicide. And I had become, uh, I became sort of very obsessed with it for a variety of reasons. Because number one, I was, I was grappling with my own depression at the time. Right. And, and two, to me, it was sort of like a potential sort of physical representation in, in the real world of um, you know, the zone in Tarkovsky's Stalker. And so I became really obsessed with sort of like doing a documentary about this place. You know, I initially did um, very well with like, you know, uh, grant writing and funding for it. But then, you know, 311, you know, the Fukushima incident happened and people got really scared off. And one of the things about when you're when you're sort of trying to raise money through grants and through like nonprofits is they really want like a strong like social commentary, yeah. and people really wanted me to make a film that was like that had strong opinions on like that was like anti-suicide and like you know about how Japanese culture sort of had encouraged this sort of behavior, and to me it wasn't like a Japanese story it was just, like this utterly like human story and it was a chance for me to sort of go and investigate this place that you know, was sort of that literally exists on the the threshold of like life and death. You know, and I spoke earlier about how, you know, I sort of grew up with this profound sense of like loss, you know, being the descendant of Holocaust survivors. And, you know, to me, the forest felt like maybe like a physical manifestation of that loss. Working on that project and learning how to write about it when I was doing the grant writing and stuff like that, I really learned how to, that's, I think, more than any, any other way, that's really how I sort of figured out what my aesthetic was and how I learned how to talk about my work. It's, it's frustrating because I know a lot of people, every once in a while, will ask me about whatever happened to that project, and, you know, and like, you know, Gus Van Sant went and made a film about it, and a lot of people sort of expressed regrets that I never finished it. But in my mind, I got what I needed to out of that project. It, like, literally saved my life. You know, it's what very much led me down the path where I am now, like, you know, investigating this place that's so closely, you know, tied to death really helped me understand, like, sort of how to live and how to be, you know, a sincere person. And that, like I said, you know, I was saying earlier, it's something that I I really felt like I had lost at some point in my 20s. Like, I'd gotten so distracted by, you know, the bullshit of, like, you know, fame and celebrity and sort of trying to, you know, make it that I had lost my ability to say anything meaningful. Right. And I kind of feel like I had to sort of go through these trials and tribulations to sort of, like, get back what I had lost. 
you know, I just think that that's something like that's really important in today. You're asking me like, what, you know, like earlier, you're asking me like what kind of draws me to certain projects. And yeah, I do have a certain aesthetic that I want to express. But I think if, you're, if I'm being more honest, I like sincerity. Yeah. Any, any like, you know, when I, the, the, I think that's the common thread with everything in my life in terms of like music and film and art, the things I'm really drawn to is, is there something, is there some sort of sincere expression happening? Is there something really honest about it? Right. And I feel like that tends to transcend, you know, all sort of um, forms of art and, you know, genre. So that's that's kind of what really has been a guiding force in my life. And I, you know, you know, I got through it. I got to that through like some very bizarre circumstances, but um, it's something that really means a lot to me. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I, I feel like sincerity is the, the key to making good art. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something like more than anything, if... Uh, if I could sort of have people sort of take something away from this conversation is about um, just be true to yourself, you know, be a good person, but also, you know, be honest about who you are and about what you're trying to say with the world. And I think it'll resonate with the right people. That's great. I love that. That's, that's a perfect way to end. So (laughs) thank you for doing this, Joshua. I really appreciate it. I I could not be more excited and flattered. I was really happy that you asked. Oh, great. And, uh, and I can't wait to see what you shoot next because I absolutely love your work. So it means a lot, man. Thank you. Thank you.